on this panel, we're going to be talking about $1 billion plus uh, family office perspectives, what they're looking for, how they screen deals, how they find deals, their uh, issues and challenges uh, that they're dealing with all the time. And we on purpose uh, leave this panel for last to try to keep everybody awake after two days of sitting uh, and before a cocktail. So I hope everyone finds it, finds it interesting. Why don't we um, start down at the end with the US Fund and uh, we can work our way down, down the line. Sure, so my name is Istvan Nadosh. I work for Dunes Point Capital, which is a private family office that pursues majority control investments in industrial manufacturing and distribution companies. I'm incredibly excited to be speaking on this panel. I was doing a little, little bit of research prior to coming up here and I found an Ernst & Young report to quantify the number of private family offices in the, in the, in the world. And in 2008, there were 1,000 private family offices. And today, that's grown to 10,000. So the private family office world is just dramatically growing and really changing the way the investing landscape is, is functioning. So very eager to talk more about that. Yeah, for sure. And I think the, the creation of wealth is part of that. The awareness that this concept exists makes people want to have a family office. Uh, and still, the masses have no idea what it means, including most ultra-wealthy, I think. Sheila, do you want to do a, a quick uh, one or two-minute intro? Sure. Um, my name is Sheila Barry Driscoll. I am the co-founder with Richard Wilson of the Billionaire Foundation. And I am the great-granddaughter of Richard Oliver Driscoll of Driscoll Strawberries. Great. Thank you. Uh, Suzanne, anything you want to add to your background from the last panel? Uh, again, I'm Suzanne Curry, uh, Senior Vice President of Institutional Sales at Celadon Financial Group. We are a prime broker, 35 years old. We work with money managers trading liquid strategies in the United States as well as 20 foreign countries. Great. Thank you. Doug? My name is Doug Dubiel, and I work with, uh, I'm a managing director with Rockefeller Capital Management. Just started with Rockefeller on November 1st after having spent the last 13 years at a billion dollar single family office, the last five years as chief operating officer and the prior eight years as uh, CIO. And prior to that, I spent 14 years with uh, Merrill Lynch and couldn't agree more with where the business is going. And one of the reasons why I moved over to Rockefeller to the, to the uh, sell side is because of this growth and the ability to create what everybody in the family office, single family office and multifamily office is really looking for going forward. Great, and that was actually the first question I was gonna to get to is what trends are you guys seeing that is changing the landscape of the industry? Does anyone have any further comments on that, like what you see changing right now? Yeah, and I'll, I'll just jump in there because I am getting more and more calls from family-owned businesses and entrepreneurs who are specifically looking for capital from private family offices where they've heard mixed stories about private equity and they don't want a private equity partner. They don't want to sell to a strategic that they may have been competing against for the last 10, 20 years. And the family office route is somewhat unknown, but oftentimes a welcome third alternative. And I think that that trend is going to keep continuing and growing where more people are actively seeking out family office capital. Right. I think in the early 90s and late 80s, uh, some people in finance knew what a hedge fund was, but it wasn't really until the 90s, maybe early 2000s, that the general public was hearing about these things, sometimes in bad ways, um, in like the newspapers and mass media. And I see with family offices right now, 
most people in finance have heard of the term and have some understanding, but not everyone still. And the general public has no idea. Some of my best friends think I help people set up home-based businesses, uh, offices in their basements or something, I think. Uh, and so I think that we're coming to a point where eventually it's going to be mainstream. It's not just going to be Soros talking about uh, converting into a family office. It's going to be you know, talked about uh, quite often. And there'll be legislature or family office centers uh, and tax incentives, et cetera, to attract family offices to certain cities or areas where they know it's going to help uh, spur the economy in those areas. I think that's, that's to come for sure. Anyone else want to comment on trends going on? Just a, a quick trend. Uh, I worked with a family that um, uh, came up with an incredible product. Uh, it was an incredible hit. The company went public on the New York Stock Exchange and then was acquired by a huge uh, pharmaceutical company. And they are, this is a family of serial entrepreneurs. They love doing this sort of thing over and over again. But th that is a very different story than perhaps my colleague over here who is working with the Rockefellers, where you have uh, a fortunes that were made generations ago, generations ago. Uh, and today, uh, two guys at a card table in a garage in California can come up with a brilliant strategy and all of a sudden, you know, uh, they're, they're looking at a billion, a couple of billion dollar valuation. So uh, I think that the, the, the landscape has changed significantly and many uh, families that are with operating businesses that are starting to sell those operating businesses are not really interested, close your ears, of going to the Bessemer Trust or the big shops or things like that. Many times they say, well, why can't we do this for ourselves, sort of under the radar screen? And I think that has promoted the proliferation of the family office market, to your point. I mean, uh, there were very few family offices when I first got into the business, except the huge names. And now they're, you know, they're all over the place. I'm, I'm astounded by the growth in this industry. Right, for sure. I think that uh, just like private banks have kind of like turf wars with multifamily offices trying to attract clients, um, I think that some people are competing that idea, should we do it ourselves, should we mm -hmm. hire you know, a big name in the industry to help us? Mm -hmm. um, as I said this morning, I think it's just a matter of like what the scope of help needs to be because almost no family is going to have their own bank to manage the cash and manage you know, foreign currency hedging mm -hmm. and manage uh, the trust, et cetera. You want those with a third-party custodian. Um, so I, I do see uh, those types of things being proliferated around the world. Like in Singapore and Hong Kong, it's fairly advanced, but and in China, much more so than three years ago. But really, it's very early days, it seems, uh, in that whole region. Anyone else want to comment on trends before I move on to the next question? I was just going to add one other point, and that is that you're, you're absolutely right in terms of, you know, the level of complexity that's out there and, and needing an office to be able to sift through. I listened to the last presentation in terms of how many emails are coming in and how many people are, are, are trying to grab one, one piece of somebody on a day-to-day -day basis. It's a, it's a lot. But I think when you look at the, uh, the single-family office structure today and the costs that's involved in setting up that office, and one of the reasons I was so excited to, to move in, in a different direction because these people, you know, there's certain families that are going to say we're going to spend our resources in, in a certain direction, but when it comes to some of the private equity and the alternatives, uh, bu alternative buckets that we've talked about for the last couple of days, it makes sense to utilize a lot of the resources that are outside that can come at it with a little bit of a different perspective uh, because there's a, uh, there's a significant cost involved when, you're, when you've got that one office. Sure. 
And uh, Sheila, I know you have uh, relationships with families globally. Uh, what have you seen in terms of the appetite for global capital wanting to come back to the United States and get access to U.S. operating mm -hmm. companies or real estate? Quite a bit, and especially from the Mideast. Dubai has a, quite a bit of an appetite to invest in some turnkey deals, what I would say hospitality, retail, where they will come into REITs and, and take them over. They're looking at nine-figure deals. Others particularly want um, ground up. They want to have the bare minimal, the, the dirt to build from. And not too many people are too terribly keen in investing in Mexico, not too much in South America. But for the United States, this is a high priority for the Mideast. Saudi Arabia primarily, and like I said, Dubai. So I'm really seeing a lot of the royal families looking at this and also asking for new technology. This is something that they really want to sink their money into. So just be on the forefront that if you have that, the Mideast is very hungry. Sure, and uh, as fun for yourself, um, as specific as possible, because I know you uh, said a couple different industries of deals you're looking for. What's the exact uh, EBITDA level uh, and the lowest you'll start at and the characteristics of a deal that really hits your strike zone uh, in as much detail as possible in just one or two minutes? Yeah, so, so we are looking for companies with a minimum of 10 million of EBITDA. We're looking to write equity checks between 50 and 150 million per transaction. So companies that have a little bit more scale that um, can demand those kinds of checks. Uh, and specifically, what, what we've found is the whole industry is becoming much more sophisticated. So the, I feel like you're, you're seeing less and less generalist investing firms and offices, and people are starting to become much more specialized. So even though we're focused on industrials, what we're, what we're doing is we're bringing on resources, senior advisors and operating partners who come out of industry, and they'll go as far as writing a white paper in a specific industry of their background to say, this is the industry I know, this is where it's, it's going, and uh, here's ways where we can add value through an investment. And the industries that we're specifically interested in is HVAC, packaging, industrial gas distribution, distribution broadly, uh, as well as power products. So those are some of the sectors that we're, we're incredibly interested in. And are you, are you paying uh, like six to eight or sometimes nine times EBITDA on those types of deals as a ballpark figure? It, you know, in the industrial space, yes, we're seeing, we're seeing the gamut where even, um, even a lower end, unspecial, undifferentiated company might trade for five, six times. And on the proprietary product, specialty manufacturing side, we're seeing companies trade over 10 times valuation multiples. It's not unusual, especially in, in, a, in an industry like packaging where Amazon is coming out and, and people are really dr dramatically spending more on packaging and really doing more design and different uh, products to, to meet that growing shift in demand. Yeah, it's interesting uh, speaking with families like you because um, I know some families invest in early stage deals. We had some angel groups that were up here. And many times, in my experience, uh, the valuation is based on like the future potential growth. Uh, it's just a different type of opportunity. It has to be motivating for the CEO to carry forward. But uh, a lot of families who also do later stage deals like yourself are starting at $3 million, but have a real trouble getting the same brain set to be OK with both. Because on the one hand, you might value a company at $20 million because their EBITDA is at you know, $4 million or, set, or something. 
and then there might be a company coming in where it's just an idea and some technology and some IP and they say they're worth 12 million and it just seems like the other one is night and day worth 10 times more than the other one. So um, I found that it's hard for families to play on both sides and you guys only do those later stage deals, right? You don't, you don't come in early even if it is an industrial operating business? Right, that's exactly right. And I, and I think if you're doing early stage investing, the questions that you're asking and what you're gearing to is very different than what we're asking. We're looking more for st sustainability, additional growth on, on the existing base versus um, traction within, uh, within a business and, and understanding the plan. And, and in some cases, the early stage guys, you know, they're not looking for the revenue profile or the profitability profile. They're looking for the metrics behind that, the, uh, the adoption rates. And, and it's, a, it's, a different, it's a different type of question and diligence that, that they're going after. Sure. Uh, Suzanne, where do you see a lot of flows going right now? I said you work with 130 family offices that, uh, that invest in the managers on your platform. Like, what are the top one or two or three strategies that you see getting allocated to? Um, we are, are seeing, uh, on the credit side, a real demand for distress managers. Um, so take that to note. Um, and healthcare is still a big uh, interest in many of the families that I'm talking to. Just for interest, who's over 50? Oh, and you're all set for your next colonoscopy, aren't you? Um, it, we've come across a company that, that, that one of our managers trades that uh, has developed nanotechnology of a pill that you swallow and you don't have to do anything else and the doctor can read all of your interior. And I ask the question, yeah, but once it passes, can you reuse it? <laughs> Maybe not. But healthcare and nanotechnology, I think, is still a you know, huge uh, uh, subject. The third, I think, is, is cannabis. Uh, but you have to be, I think I'm seeing a lot of thematic approach to cannabis. I'm seeing a lot of interest in cannabis-infused water and beverages. Interesting as a different way to look at the cannabis market. And the final aspect on that is because cannabis is not legal in every state, uh, and it is a cash business, many banks stay away from it, but those businesses still have to have accounting services. And there's many, many managers that are looking at who are the uh, accounting firms and the CPA firms that can go into uh, helping cannabis businesses, and that is be viewed as a quite a growth opportunity. Suzanne, I feel like you've listened to some Howard Stern in your past, uh, perhaps yes. with your, uh, I said, I feel like you've listened to some Howard Stern. Uh, oh my goodness, past, uh, <laughs> I despise Howard Stern. Oh, okay. <laughs> Why did Maybe I say not. so? Uh, so uh, Sheila, in your experience, what is the best way to grow genuine, authentic relationships with billion dollar plus net worth families or just families that are ultra wealthy in the hundreds of millions, I think is what most people are caring about more than whether they're over one billion or not. I think the best way to do that is to, first off, use what I call the um, KLT factor. It's know, like, and trust. Once you get to know each other, you start to like each other, trust each other, then you'll do business. And at the level of the billionaires, they are very particular with whom they associate, what they're looking for, what they want to do, but primarily they want to trust the people that they enter into their worlds. And I would say that's probably the biggest takeaway that I've had with them. So. 
Sure, I think uh, that's a great comment. There was um, a real estate manager here in South Florida that a $400 million family that I represent was gonna allocate to, and they'd already decided to allocate five million. It was going through due diligence, had finished due diligence, and we were just setting up the documents and the LLCs to make the allocation. And just because of a single sentence the CFO said, uh, they just backed out and said, no, we're done. If that's the way your brain works, like, you're just not for us. You know, it's just a values-based thing, or if that idea was in their head, it's just they just don't align in the world uh, value-wise, uh, so, to your point. Uh, Doug, go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to add that, um, you know, back to the, to the last session when, when they were uh, talking about trying to get in touch with uh, the, the uh, CIO of an organization and, and, and trying to present a deal. I don't think there's anybody in the family office world that's in this room, and again, I'm putting on, on the hat that I had for 13 years, that is being shown a deal that has got a, a 7 or an 8% IRR attached to it. I mean, all of these deals look great, right? At the end of the day, those somebody said they had 30,000 emails in one day. I don't know if that was – that's unbelievable. But every every deal that's being pitched looks like that. To a, to a family office. So back to your point about trying to know somebody and trust somebody and develop a relationship, there's no way that you're really going to get through that front door without the knowing and the trusting just to right. kind of validate that. Right. Yeah. I, I thought I got a lot of emails, but that is a lot. Uh, what about getting access to someone like you, Doug? What do you respond to? Uh, what types of approaches? What types of communications? And uh, exactly what are you looking for deal flow-wise as an organization right now? Well, in, in the family office world, because it's obviously different in terms of what I'm doing right now, but in the family office world, uh, you know, we, we chose to go down a certain direction utilizing consultants for, for that very reason I talked about earlier in terms of trying to leverage resources. There's, in a 13-person shop that we had, there was no way we were going to find the same level of resources on a day-to-day -day basis that some of these other institutions could offer us. And, uh, and obviously, we want to be as unconflicted as possible. But uh, at the end of the day, we relied a lot on, uh, of these, from these outside uh, resources on a day-to-day -day basis. So for sure, these emails that would come in, the first level would be the consultants that we're working with. Because from an asset allocation, whether it's strategic, tactical, our, our consultants on the outside are coming back with specific recommendations. It might be, you know, take a look at these three managers or these five managers. Having served as a trustee, it's a little bit different than just serving as the CIO or the CEO, right? Because the, the liability, you get in front of a judge and a jury 10 years from today, 20 years from today, there's a certain amount of liability that you've got to look for when it comes to the next generation and so forth. So, so that first level is definitely going to be done through the consultants that we utilized on the outside that we leveraged. And then once, they, once the ideas came to us, then we would sift through and find the ideas that were more appropriate. Sure. That makes sense. And uh, Suzanne, I think there's people here in the room who are selling you know, accounting services, legal services, um, a platform that might provide like life concierge support. And your firm, if I understand correct, you know, has this pool of fund managers through the prime brokerage firm. It's doing a you know, cap intro, and then you're reaching out to family offices. And part of the explanation, I'm sure, to family offices is, hey, we have uh, some, you know, at some level vetted fund managers of different strategies, and we've got great access, and we can make it more efficient for you to connect with some great quality fund managers. Uh, but can you go into some of the nuances of what you've learned as an organization on getting an audience with family offices? Because they do get so many communications when you're offering a platform or a service of that nature. 
um, <clears throat> being around in the business a long time really does does help and, and start to open doors for you. Uh, and coming to uh, forums such as this are absolutely fantastic in terms of uh, being able to exchange cards and get to know e each other, et cetera, et cetera. Again, uh, my goal has always been to shorten a sales cycle so that when a family tells me that this is what we're looking for, um, we'd really try to focus in on that as opposed to, well, you may think you want that, but let, let me show you this kind of thing. Um, and I'm, I'm afraid a lot of people uh, get caught in that sort of trap where they think, I'm going to hit you over the head until you buy this frying pan uh, from me until, you know, until the cows come home. Um, so I think that, that it's really, really important. Um, again, uh, the listening thing is so huge and try to be a problem solver. The hard part is that if you have you know, one product and that's what you're selling, it's very hard to be a problem solver if someone says to you, well, I like what you're telling me, but what we really need is X. Um, and I'll give you a little example. Uh, we have a family office that we've worked with for many years and they decided to buy themselves, wait for it, an Italian soccer team. Okay, fine. Uh, they bought the Italian soccer team, they put uh, probably another $10 million into the team, and then they came to us and said, we want other family offices to come in as co-investors. Do you think you could do that? So we said, all right, well, because it's you and because it's who you are, um, we will do this as a one-off kind of a thing. And I went through a Rolodex of 100-plus family offices and came up with about 40 families that have an appetite for uh, sports franchises and things of that nature. We showed it to them and we were able to raise some money. That's a very unusual situation. Very, very unusual and as I described it as a one-off. Um, but we have, we have a lot of things where we have got to really think through as to how do we provide a solution for what this family is looking for. Because families are great on the stocks, bonds, and cash. No question about it. But where it comes to, becomes challenging is to get into deal flow that they really, uh, really want to see and evaluate and be able to understand it if, it, if they're going to open up their asset allocation pie for that sliver to put that strategy in that asset allocation pie. Yeah, I think you made four or five really good points there. I think uh, shortening the sales cycle is what everyone is interested in uh, at the end of the day. So I like that you brought that up. I, some of my mentors like... Evan Pagan and Dan Sullivan and Dan Kennedy and Joe Polish have, you know, just taught me that if you do know who you're serving and you can be helpful to them in many ways, uh, then that just allows for so many doorways into your organization. You know, even if some of those ways are non-monetary, you know, communications and it's just being helpful to a third party, uh, like Esfan was talking about, speaking at um, industry events or writing a specific white paper as a family office because you're competing for deal flow out there, and a lot of families just don't have that mindset. They become liquid, and they don't have a plan, they don't have a vision, they don't have a strike zone defined, and they don't realize they're competing for the best deals out there. And if you don't uh, compete, then you're the 20th person to see the deal or the 200th person, and you're never the first person, uh, more than once every three to four years, perhaps. Yep. One more point. Um, uh, we, we, I, whenever I sit down with a family, and I really do an enormous amount of diagnostics and asking, you know, what does your portfolio look like? Have you added any new strategies? But I always ask an important question, and that is, have you got any managers on manager watch? Meaning that they're concerned that the manager may not be able to continue doing what they have been doing for the last, uh, you know, X amount of years. I'll give you an example. 
we had a very significant family and they had a large cap manager out in Pittsburgh uh, made up of a team of five with you know a bunch of analysts etc uh, the head guy passed away the other guy decided to retire and the third guy was perhaps not the the lead sled dog in the in the team and so the family put this manager on manager watch well if I had not asked that question I wouldn't have known it. And so when I asked, oh, do you have any managers on manager watch? They said, you know, we've got a large cat manager in Pittsburgh and we're not crazy about what they're doing. And I was very appreciative that they had a slug of 300 million with this large cat manager. So knowing that information gives you intelligence so that I went and I, it just so happened we have a large cat manager on our platform. And I said, this may be an opportunity. That manager got the 300 million. Nice, but it's because I asked the question and because I really thought about what changes are you making. I think everybody assumes that everybody, families put their money out for investment and it's going to stay that way forever. It's, it's not, it's not, and not at all. There is movement all the time. Right. Just a tip. That's a, that's a great insight. I know some families that have uh, valuation companies because they know when someone's valuing an asset, they might be selling it. So mm -hmm. it's intelligence. I know commercial real estate firms, besides an investment management company, they do the leasing and brokering in the same area, so they know who's renewing their lease, they know when prices are getting soft. You know, they have market information that in the stock market world would be called insider trading, and commercial real estate world, it's called, you know, doing well, whether or not you think it's ethical or not, it's effective intelligence, essentially. Uh, we've got five minutes for a couple of questions from the audience, if anyone would like to ask one to one or more of the panelists. Yes. Oh, what's the uh, Billionaire uh, Foundation about? I'll let you uh, take that one, Sheila, if you want to. So the purpose of the Billionaire Foundation is to reduce redundancy. What does that mean? So we have seven foundations that are all doing cancer research. You come to me and say, I want to open my own foundation. I want to be the eighth foundation that does cancer research. And I said, well, before you do that, why don't you talk to the other seven families who have already done it in the space? Look at their infrastructure, look at their strategic plan, their succession plan. What are their best practices? How many employees do they have? Could you possibly leverage your expertise along with theirs? And yet, rather than going out and creating an eighth foundation, quite possibly you could work together and create something better. So think of Gates and Warren Buffett they began literally the giving pledge and smart use of time and resources. So that's kind of what we try to parlay to our billionaires. They don't have to get off their throne. They don't have to come off of their white ivory towers. But if they do and they learn how to collaborate rather than compete, the higher good's going to be served. Right, so we don't take any money. And so Richard has been kind enough to underwrite all the expense of the foundation. And it's been our promise to each other and our staff, we do not take salaries. Because our advice, our time, our knowledge and expertise, we give back to our community in the form of being available and in advising. Basically just a space where there's a lot of inefficiency and duplicate resources. And if the 
foundation that's already operating with a million a year overhead will say any gift uh, can be written, customized on what that gift's going to go to, and it's 100% of the cause because we're already footing the overhead, then it just seemed like an area where the industry needs a little bit more organization. So it's our attempt to, to do that uh, with the Billionaire Foundation. But yeah, we don't accept any money or any gifts directly at all. Uh, any more questions? Yes, in the back. What are the emerging markets you're most excited about with high, high growth opportunities? I'll answer that. Um, I'm looking for, for example, um, proven enterprises, uh, entrepreneurial companies that are looking to actually digitally transform their businesses into a decentralized as service business and then leveraging with it um, AI, autonomy, blockchain technologies. Because I really think if you look at it, all the industries are going to be disrupted. But primarily where I'm focused is AI. I'm looking at um, supply chain, egg, commodities, um, what else, fintech. I think they're all up and coming. And to jump jump onto that, um, while we're focused on industrials, which are more mainstream, simpler businesses, we're spending a lot of time looking at industrial technology, IoT, as well as factory automation solutions that take labor out of the equation. So even industrial businesses that have been doing business status quo for the last hundred years, we think that there can be some dramatic disruption in the next five, 10, 15 years as new technology come, comes up and makes, makes the processes more sim or simpler, essentially. And just a, a point on that, I really like to listen to people that are a lot smarter than me. Uh, one of the guys is John Levin, who runs Levin Capital Management in New York, who's kind of squirrely, but he's brilliant. Um, and he had, had always said, Suzanne, you know, last century was Europe, this century was the United States, next century is China. Interesting perspective. Um, and he is not invested in any of the European countries. He is still heavily invested in the United States and is being very selective about China. Just a thought. Right. My, my experience has been it's hard to get investors to invest in a place they didn't come from, don't go off and don't do business, and currently, mm -hmm. uh, you know, then they just are not fully aware and they're not going to get that high conviction mm -hmm. uh, to go forward on the investment typically. Any other questions from the audience? Okay, I just have a few notes here uh, to wrap up before cocktails. One is that we have 23 events planned uh, next year. We had 